39. Luke chapter 8, verses 26 to 39. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for he had, for many a time he had, it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with shackles and chains. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for we are many. And they begged him not to, they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss, but now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs. And the herd rushed down the deep bank, steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Then when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and the country. People went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus and clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. And so he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This is the word of our Lord. You may be seated. And let's pray again together. Lord Jesus, you are the almighty God. And Lord, we praise you that, oh, that though the forces of darkness lined up against you in an attempt to overturn all that you have done and all that you are doing, we thank you, Lord, that, that you have defeated them all. Lord Jesus, we praise you that even though it looks for a time like the enemy is winning, we know that final victory has been assured. For Lord Jesus, you have won the victory. As we saw a couple of weeks ago, you won the victory over nature. You've won the victory over demons. You have won the victory over disease. You have won the, the victory over death. And Lord, we praise you that your victory is our victory. Lord, we praise you that all that you have done, you have done for us, for your people. Lord, I pray as we consider this passage this morning to consider your deity, to consider your authority, to consider that your deity and your authority are for your people. And help us, Lord, I pray, to respond in faith and love and worship and obedience by your grace and for your glory. Amen. There is a popular interest in our culture in the occult. Hollywood makes bucket loads of money by glorifying and dramatizing the deeds of the enemy. But what Hollywood is presenting, most people consider to be fiction. But it's real life. Demons are real. Demon oppression is real. And even demon possession is real, even though we don't hear about it very much in our culture. It still happens today. I've heard many stories 
especially during my time in the South Pacific in Papua New Guinea and Vanuatu, about, of things that, that can really only be described as demonic activity. But I do believe that, that at least some of what is described as mental illness in our culture has a demonic component. I've been a Christian for 27 years and a, and a pastor for, for 10. But in, in, in all my life as a Christian, I, I, I really can only think of one circumstance in, in which I, I saw something that, that I, I believe was actually demonic possession. It was when I was living in Toronto. Was, I spent a year at the Toronto Baptist Seminary. And, and um, during an evening service at Jarvis Baptist Church, uh, there was a... There was a, a, a man came in, and he was a, was a large man. Um, he was blind, um, very disheveled. He, had, he was um, dirty and smelly, and, and he was with, a, with a, this tiny little woman. And, and they, they didn't do really much of anything during the service, but, but after the service, when, when, when people were, were going to leave, I noticed a crowd by the, by the door of the church. And people were, were peeking through the crack at what was going on and, and asked, well, what's happening? And they said, well, look at this guy, what he's doing with the pastor. And so this, this man was, was yelling at the pastor, cursing and, and blaspheming. And, and people were, were afraid to go out there. But I thought, well, somebody's got to go out there. And so, so I, I went out there and, and stood with the pastor. And, and as we're trying to engage with this man, I started to, to um, escort him off the property. And, and as we were going, I was trying to talk to him, but, but he was, was continuing to scream these, these blasphemies, these curses. And when we got to, to adjacent to the student housing, which was next to the church, he, he, we stopped and he, and he, he continued to, to yell like this. And, and a, a good friend of mine heard from, from a few doors down what was, was happening, and he looked out the window. He's like, what's going on? I said, I don't know. But this, so he, he ran down and, and came and, and stood with me as we were, we're trying to engage um, the, this, this man and, and this woman. It was very clear that this man was not, it was, was not willing to listen, so I turned my attention to the woman and started to proclaim the gospel to her. And as soon as I, I started to talk about the works of Christ, this, this woman, she just collapsed. She fell like a, like a sack of potatoes um, at my feet. And I looked at you and I said, I didn't do that. I didn't. But I, I, I helped her up and continued to try to, to speak the gospel to her. And then this man who had been yelling these blasphemies and curses, all of a sudden, he was calm and peaceful. He actually started to expound scripture. And Ian and I were looking at each other like, what is going on here? Now, of course, he was, he, this, this man was, was misinterpreting and misapplying scripture. And, and I would have had every reason in, in, if, in, if I'm saying it all, would have, have any, would have every reason to be terrified. But we have, don't need to fear these things because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And this man, as, as he was just talking like a normal person at this point, um, told us how he had been, his parents had been Satanists and he had been ritually abused from, from as early as he could remember. And so we're trying to, to engage this, this couple with the gospel, and then, then the, the police came and, and, and they left. This is just one example of, 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 of the sort of thing that, 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 again, I do believe this stuff takes place, even though we, we try to explain it away. But we need to be very careful in, in how we, we think about these things and how we engage these things. We, we don't engage the enemy in our own strength. We cannot engage the enemy in our own strength. But nor do we need to fear what the enemy does because, again, Jesus Christ has won the victory. And we're going to see that this morning. And that the victory that Jesus Christ won, he won not just against the demonic powers, but, but, but for us. He won those victories for his people. Thankfully, it seems that the demon possession is rare. And it's even rare in the Bible. The Bible says nothing about demon possession apart from the Gospels and Acts. 
We talked about this earlier in Luke, but it, it seems that the demonic activity around the time of the incarnation of Christ was greatly, was greatly intensified. Now, we, we've, we've seen that Jesus, we've already seen Jesus casting out demons, but this is different. This is not one demon in this passage, but thousands. But Jesus will come out the victor. Jesus' victory is assured. Jesus has power over nature. We saw that a couple weeks ago. Jesus has power over demons and over disease and over death. Now, these things, all of these things, have power over us, but they have no power over Jesus. And because of Jesus, they have no ultimate power over his people. So again, as we saw Jesus, a couple weeks ago, we saw that Jesus had, had calmed the storm. And at the end of that passage, remember the disciples asked in, in verse uh, 25, they, they marveled, they were very afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water? And they obey him. And, and this subsection, this, in, this where Jesus is showing his, his authority over nature, and this week over demons, and then the next couple of weeks we'll see over disease and, and over death, all of these things are, are really causing people to ask the question, Who is this? Who is this Jesus? And it's preparing in, in the, the Gospels, it's preparing the disciples and preparing, preparing us for the very important, for the crucial question in Luke 9.20, who do you say that I am? Now there are three key scenes in this narrative. In verses 26 to 29, we'll see the man's enslavement to demons. And in verses 30 to 33, we'll see Jesus' authority over demons. And then in verses 34 to 39, reactions to Jesus' authority. Now this incident is recorded in all three synoptic Gospels, here in Luke chapter 8, verses 26 to 39, but also in, uh, in uh, Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 to 91, and in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 21. Matthew's account is more brief, and Mark's account is longer. And, but and although they are, are described quite similarly, there are some of the, of the details that critics of the Bible use an attempt to challenge the inerrancy of God's word, and we'll, we'll deal with those in turn. But in this passage, once again, Jesus is demonstrating his deity. We'll see Jesus' absolute authority over demons in the redemption of this man, and we'll see the proper response to Jesus' authority. So first of all, in verses uh, 26 to 29, let's consider the man's enslavement to demons. Again, think for a moment about the response of the disciples to Jesus calming the storm. When Jesus calmed the storm in the sea, the storm blew up in their hearts. They were afraid, and so they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? But with the storm calmed outside the boat, the, the disciples and Jesus sailed to their destination, the Gerasenes. So Jesus... Jesus encountered that storm because he wanted to go to a particular place. Matthew describes this place as the Gadarenes, and Mark parallels Luke, calling it the Gerasenes. Now, it's not known exactly where this was, but, but, there, but there is a site on the eastern bank of the, of the Sea of Galilee, which is a place now called Kersey, uh, at the, the base of the Golan Heights, that was venerated by Byzantine monks as the location of this miracle. And there's, there's the, the ruins of a church um, at this site. I visited there in, in 2008. And it's interesting that, that, that this is one of the only places in the region where there is a steep bank that actually runs all the way down to the water's edge. It's very possible that this indeed was the site where this miracle took place. But that's not really important. The, 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 the exact geographical location of this is not the important thing. Well, the important thing is that it happened. And the important part of the, of the geographical location comes at the end of verse 26, which is, which is really more important here. It's, it says the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. It was opposite Galilee. It was on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. 
Now, if you're to look at a, at a map of, of Israel during the time of Jesus' ministry, you'll see that that, that region, eastern, east, uh, the, the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, was not part of Israel. It was Gentile territory. It was the eastern frontier of, of the Roman Empire, and it was populated by Gentiles. And so Jesus is going into Gentile territory. And apart from, from Jesus and his family, when he, soon after his birth, going fleeing to Egypt because of, of the threat of Herod, this is the only time during Jesus' first incarnation that he left Israel. The only time. Jesus here went with the ministry of the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, we've already seen in Luke's gospel account, we've seen Gentiles coming to Jesus. We saw that in, in uh, Luke 6, 17, how people had come from Tyre and Sidon, from those seacoasts um, south to come to, to hear Jesus' ministry. And also in uh, the, the, the Roman centurion coming to Jesus in, in Luke 7, 1 to 10. But again, this is the first time in Luke that the good news travels outside of the geographic boundaries of, of Israel. In fact, it's the only time that this takes place. But in doing this, in Jesus traveling now to, to the eastern part of the Sea of Galilee and ministering to, to, in this Gentile region, he's revealing that the gospel is not just for Jews. He's demonstrating that he is a light of, for revelation to the Gentiles, as Simeon had prophesied in Luke chapter 2, verse 32. Friends, the message of the gospel is for the nations. This is really a, a foretaste of what we're going to see in the book of Acts. The plan is when we finish the book of Luke, I'm going to go into um, the, the book of, of Acts, which is really Luke part two. When Jesus stepped out on the land, he had a welcoming party. He disembarked from the boat and was met by a welcoming party, but this party was not very welcoming and it certainly was not a party. Luke describes his, his, this man as a man from the city who had demons. This man was, was a demoniac. He was demon-possessed. Now, Jesus had come then to this particular location at this particular time to minister to this particular man. This Gentile was an outsider among outsiders. Jesus had come to a land filled with people that the Jews considered unclean to minister to a man who was possessed by an unclean spirit. This, this business of uncleanness is something we'll see as a thread that runs through this passage. But Jesus was on a mission of mercy. Mark and Luke here refer to one demoniac, but Matthew refers to two. And some claim this as evidence that there is an error in the scriptures. But we know that Scripture never contradicts Scripture, so what's going on here? Well, in, in order to, to answer that question, the first thing we need to establish is, is whether each of these three Gospel accounts is speaking of the same event. Well, they clearly are. The, the similarity of the other details and the fact that in each of, of the Synoptic Gospels, this event is relayed immediately after the calming of the sea reveals that it is indeed the same thing. They're speaking of the same situation. Now, we can't know specifically why Matthew mentions 2 and Mark and Luke 1, but you need to understand that there isn't really any contradiction here. Because Luke says there was, was a man, but does, never says there was only one man. The same is true for Mark. Do you understand that? There, there, he says there is a man. He doesn't say that there, that there, were, there was only one man. Now, if, if I say to you, here is a glass of water on the pulpit. I'm being 100% accurate. This is a glass of water. But now if you, you can see from, from where you're sitting that there is actually a second glass of water here. Now if you were to, to come up here and say, no, I, you're, 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 not, you're not telling the truth. You're wrong. There's, there, you said there was a glass, but there's not. There's two. Well, of course you wouldn't say that. You just, you know, I was talking about one of the glasses. And, and the same is, is true here. There's, there's no contradiction. Luke and Mark simply focus their attention on one of the demoniacs. Now Luke briefly describes the man's plight. He says, For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. Well, here again we're seeing this, this business of, of uncleanness. 
not just the, the man in his, in his nudity, but, but the, and, and that the Gentiles were unclean, that the spirit was unclean, and the location here, that the tombs were also unclean, but it, because it was, you would become unclean if you came into contact with, with, a, with a dead body. The, tombs were, the area of the tombs was considered unclean. And so Luke here presents the initial confrontation with Jesus before flashing back in verse 29 to further describe the man's plight. Now Luke is presenting the order of events here in this way to, to emphasize, to highlight the conflict between Jesus and these demons. In, in Luke 28, Luke, t- in, uh, Luke 8, 28, Luke tells us that when the demon saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. Th- this man was so utterly controlled by demons that even his voice was not his own. But as the disciples in the boat had not recognized who Jesus was, the demons knew. And they knew that they would be defeated by the one who was standing before them. Matthew adds in, in Matthew 8, 29, And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come to, de- to, torment, us, to de- torment us before the time? This is a reference to uh, Revelation 20, 1-3, amongst other places, where Satan is bound for a thousand years and cast into the pit. The, the demons know that they will be cast into the lake of fire, but they know that it's not yet. They know that this time is in the future. And so the, the devil, as we're told in, in Revelation 12, 12, the devil has come down in great wrath because he knows his time is short. And so they ask Jesus not to, to torment them. And, and um, they also ask um, that he would not be, um, be sent away in, in Mark's gospel. And it's amazing here that, that Jesus actually agrees to, to their pleas. He actually doesn't do what they, what they ask him not to do. The demon knew who Jesus was. Even though the disciples in the boat did not know, the demon knew. He knew he was in the presence of God. The demon identifies Jesus as the Son of God, as the devil had in Luke chapter 4, verses 3 and 9, and as the, dev- as the demon-possessed uh, slave girl will in Acts 16, 17. James 2.19 says that the demons believe that God is one. The demons know and they shudder. And this demon falls on the ground before Jesus. But this is not worship. It's not worship. It is, it is ob- obeisance. He, he's falling on the ground in, in submission. He must respect who Jesus is. Even if he will not worship Jesus, he must respect his authority. We're going to come back and deal with this more in the, se- in the next section. And verse 29 tells us why the demons are so vexed. Because Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Jesus had pity on the man, so he commanded the unclean spirit to come out. He was engaged in this exorcism, not, again, not just in, in opposition to the works of the, of the devil, but also for this man. Jesus charges straight into the fray. He has come to rescue this man, and he is not going to waste any time. But now in verse 29b, Luke further describes the man's plight. For many a time the unclean spirit had seized the man. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Mark 5, 5 adds more detail. Night and day he was among the tombs, and on the mountains he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. What a tragic existence. This man was completely under demonic power, body and soul. He was isolated, without human dignity. He was harming himself. He had superhuman strength, so, just so that, that chains couldn't bind him. But he was under a much worse bondage. He was possessed by demons. He was actually owned by demons. No one could control him until now. He'd been like the living dead. But as we think about this case, as we think about this man, as we think about the, the extremity of, of what is taking place here, we need to understand that it is not just the demon-possessed who are under demonic power, body, and soul. There are many 
who are in bondage to Satan, whose lives look nothing like this. They appear respectable. They have jobs. They have families. They wear clothes, except on the beach. They are your neighbors. They're your co-workers. They're your friends. They are your family members. Now, they might not be demon-possessed, but they're still in dire straits. They're in bondage to Satan, and unless they're redeemed through the gospel, they're headed for hell. They're in, Satan, they're in bondage to Satan's temptations towards sexual immorality, drunkenness, drug abuse, disobedience to authority, and so on. But not just those visible thin, sins. They're also in bondage to covetousness, to foolishness, to anger, fear, and pride. As J.C. Rowell notes, the, the devil still urges many in whose hearts he reigns into self-dishonoring and self-destroying habits of life. He still rules many with a rod of iron, goads them on from vice to vice, from profligacy to profligacy, drives them far from decent society and the influence of respectable friends, and plunges them into the lowest depths of wickedness, makes them little better than self-murderers, and rends them as useless to their families, to the church, and the world, as if they were dead and not alive. And you and I were once just like them. We were in bondage to Satan, too. Please turn with me in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2, the, the passage that Joshua read for us earlier, Ephesians chapter 2. Look at these for the first three verses. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, who were by nature the children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. They were dead in the trespasses and sins. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. They follow, they follow and we followed Satan. They are, and we were, by nature, the children of wrath. We were all in the same predicament as that demoniac. But praise God that none are too far gone, that they are out of the reach of the gospel. Let's continue in Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 6. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together in Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus Jesus had pity on that man Jesus had pity on us. It would be unthinkable to walk away from someone in such a pitiable condition without offering them help. It was unthinkable for Jesus, and it should be unthinkable for us. Brothers and sisters, you have been given the treasure of the gospel. Someone faithfully proclaimed the gospel to you. Will you faithfully proclaim the gospel to others? Well, now let's consider in verses 30 to 33, Jesus' authority over demons. We've already seen Jesus' authority over demons. He, he defeated Satan, the, the chief demon, in Luke 4, 1 to 13. And whenever, throughout his, his gospel ministry, whenever Jesus encountered those who were possessed with demons, he cast them out. He exercised the demon. We saw earlier in this passage, in verses 28 and 29, that the, Jesus, the demons recognized Jesus' authority and fell to the ground before him. Well, now Jesus continues to reveal his absolute authority, and so he asks the demon, what is your name? Now, in that culture, it was considered that, that if you were to, to, to get somebody's name, that it gave you an authority over them. But Jesus didn't need to know the demon's name in order to have authority. We've, we've seen repeatedly that, that, that Jesus cast out demons without ever having asked 
the, the demon's name. He is doing this here for the benefit of those who are watching and also for us to further reveal his authority. The demon answers and gives the name Legion for many demons had entered the man. Now this is very likely a reference to a Roman legion. And a Roman legion it has between 4,000 and 6,000 soldiers. This is not a one-on-one -on -one battle. This is one against thousands. But there's no question who is going to win. The demons were powerful. But Jesus possesses infinite power. And so the demons beg Jesus, this time not to, to command them to, to depart into the abyss. They, they could do nothing without asking permission. Now there's a lesson for us in this. If, if you are someone who is, is prone to, to, be, um, to, to be wrongly fearful of demons, you, you should be concerned. You need to be on your guard. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But, but if you are, are overly fearful of the demonic, remember that the devil has no authority over God. As Martin Luther said, the devil is God's devil, and his operation is always subject to God's sovereign decree. The, the, the devil cannot do anything apart from that which God allows. We, we see this in the book of, of Job, don't we? How, how the how, how the devil is, is given reign to, to come into and to attack Job, but only so far. Only to a certain point. This is the line, and you shall not pass. And as you look at the, the big picture of the book of Job, you see that, that all of these things that, that take place in Job's life are ultimately for the glory of God and for Job's good. As you see, by the end of Job, Job is testifying of the glory of God. He's seeing God's glory in, in a way that he had never seen before. And, and yes, we see that, that he is restored and is, is, he has given new, new children and, and, and riches that are greater than what he had before. But the greatest thing for Job is that he saw in a greater way the glory of God. You need to understand that, that, that the Lord allowed that. And, and we can see that in our own lives that, that where there is, and, and again, I, I'm not going to get into it, the details of, of where, uh, of of what is, is a result simply of, of living in a sinful world and, and, and understanding that, that there's sinners around us, not necessarily even those that are they're controlled by, by de demons, but understanding that, that God is sovereign over those things. That, that you can trust that God really is omnipotent. And he really is omniscient. He, he really is using even those horrible things in your life for your good. You can be assured of his love because he sent his son to die for your sins. Now, it's only Luke here that mentions the abyss, um, that, where the demons ask that they not be sent into the, 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 the abyss. The, the abyss is the place of the dead. Read about this in, uh, in Romans 10, 7. Who will, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead? It is, this is the, the underworld. It's, it's Hades. It's, it's Gehenna. It's the place... Um, to which demons and disembodied, the disembodied disobedient are kept awaiting judgment. This is where demons go and it's where unbelievers go when they die. It's, it's the place of the dead as they wait the final judgment from God and the, and the demons aren't, don't want to go there. And Mark 5 in, includes, and they begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. I mentioned that a few moments ago. Here we have these demons again begging Jesus. And again, Jesus granting their request. Well, in verse 32, we read that a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. Again, the demons are, are begging Jesus, and again, Jesus grants the request. Now, remember this, this thread of, of the unclean that we've been talking about. We have an, an unclean... We have an unclean region, we have an unclean spirit, we have unclean people, and we have unclean animals. Pigs are considered unclean to the Jews. It's further evidence that this, was, this area was Gentile territory at the time. 
You, you wouldn't find a, a herd of pigs in Israel, and you still won't find a herd of pigs today there. Mark tells us that it's about 2,000 pigs. So again, this is a very large number of demons. They, Jesus sends the unclean spirits into the unclean animals. Think of the, the irony. Here you have, have unclean animals that are a repository for unclean spirits. Well, then, in verse 33, the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake, and they're drowned. Now, animal activists might complain that, that Jesus cured the man at the expense of the poor pigs. Well, to that, I'd simply say that you are of more value than many pigs. Others might complain that it wasn't fair to the pig herders. Well, F.W. Farrar, the, the commentator, answers that, that the freeing of the neighborhood from the peril of the, and terror of, of this wild maniac was a greater benefit to the whole city than the loss of the herd. And to that, I would add that, that, that what Jesus did there as a, a visible demonstration of his power, that this miracle of exercising the, the demons from this man and, and putting them into the pigs was, was, was a grace to these people. They had been given a first-hand opportunity to witness what Jesus could do. But as we'll see, they reject that grace. Again, the pigs are a clear display to all around of the man's spiritual deliverance. This is a clear testimony to us as well of the deliverance from the devil that Jesus brings. And so as we think about the, the man's deliverance here, we, we also need to think about our deliverance, not only our deliverance in the past from, from the past bondage to Satan, but also deliverance from the present threat of Satan. Please turn with me in your Bible to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, verses, verses one, 8 to 11. 1 Peter 5, 8 to 11. In verse 8, Peter warns, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, there are two main lies that the devil uses in order to, in order to, to get people where he wants them, to have reign in their lives. Well, the first is, is in focusing so much on the demonic that you keep your eyes off of God. This is the sensationalism of, of the demon, the demonic, and, and this is really even what, what takes place in, in a lot of, of churches that, that are into the word faith movement. We'll talk about this in a moment. That they, they, they so focus on the demonic that they're really not focusing on God. Well, that's one of the lies that Satan, Satan tells. And the other is that he's not real, that he doesn't exist, that he's not doing anything. We need to focus our eyes on Christ and, and see the warnings that were given in Scripture and seek the, the deliverance that comes from Christ and through Christ. We must resist the devil, standing firm in our faith. But we don't stand in our own strength. We don't stand in our own authority. Again, in the, the word faith movement, you, you, you see people re rebuking Satan. They're re rebuking the spirit of this and, and the spirit of that. This is a fiction. It's not in the scriptures. Satan laughs at these things. They, they even attempt to, to wield Jesus' name as, as a magic talisman. But none of this stuff is in the scriptures. Quite the opposite. For example, in, in Jude verse 9, we read that even the archangel Michael, who's contending with the devil, said, the Lord rebuke you. See the same thing in Zechariah 3, that, that it, this is not people standing in their own authority. Claiming to have an authority that, that, is, that is not theirs. They're standing in the, the Lord's authority. And so we stand with brothers and sisters who are standing against Satan. Confident, as, as, he says here, as Peter says here in, in verse 10. Confident that God will restore and confirm and strengthen 
and establish us. To him, to God, be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Again, we need to keep these things in, in mind as, as we're, we're dealing with, with, with the demonic. We need to, to not make the mistake that a culture blames and, and doesn't and blame everything on, on just on our upbringing or, or on, on chemical imbalances. We need to realize that there is a very real demonic realm and it hates Jesus and it hates us. Turn with me again to also to, uh, to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 and following. I, I preached on this three years ago in a series under the, the, as we started through the, the, um, the, the book of the Ephesians, uh, the letter to the Ephesians on, on the spiritual armor. First of all, Ephesians 6.10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be, may be able to withstand against the schemes of the devil. Again, the devil doesn't, doesn't his, his schemes aren't obvious. He's cunning. He's been doing this for a long time, and he's really good at it. But we need to look to the Lord, to the truths of God's word that helps us to overcome the devil and his schemes. Verse 12, we, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood but against rulers and authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is a very real battle, even though you can't see it with your eyes. And so Paul goes on to say, take up the spiritual armor. So you'll be able to stand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. So stand, and then he talks about the spiritual armor. So the, the belt of truth, the blessed breastplate of righteousness, gospel shoes, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And also, I think we need to consider as, as part of the spiritual armor is prayer. Praying in verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. So we need to stay alert because we have an enemy. He is very real. And he hates you. But he has been defeated by Jesus Christ for you. 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus has bound the strong man. And in, in Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Now Paul there is drawing a line between that, that passage and going all the way back to Genesis 3, 15 where, where God had, had promised that, that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. We looked at this through Genesis, but this is the theme that goes all the way through the scriptures. The, the war between, between the, the, the seed of the woman, ultimately Jesus Christ, and between Satan and his seed. And Jesus won the victory at the cross. But there's still a sense in which final victory is yet to come. And so we walk in the victory that Jesus has accomplished and the final victory that Jesus will accomplish on that day, on the final day. But until that time, the devil continues to seek to undermine the work of God. And what is the, the, the crowning work of God? You. You are the crowning work of God. You are made in the image of God. And Satan can't touch God, so he comes after you. But Jesus has won the victory for you. Jesus, God incarnate, is in your corner. Romans 8, 37 to 39. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus Christ has overcome the devil for us. Jesus Christ has overcome the evil one and in God's power. And so Christians will overcome the evil one in God's power. 1 John 2, 13 and 14. So finally, let's, let's consider verses 34 to 39, reactions to Jesus' authority. Reactions to Jesus' authority. 
And here we're going to re- we see the response of the of the, the people from the surrounding region, and we're also going to see the response of the, the former demoniac. First of all, the herdsmen in verse 34, when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. They saw the exorcism and they, they saw what happened to the pigs. And so they, they, these, these men fled. They, they were witnesses. They saw what had happened. This is repeated twice more in the next few verses. And so they went and told everybody what had happened. The, the word news travels fast than a herd of pigs. They went and told everybody what had taken place. And so now the people flooded from those, those towns and villages back to the place to, to see for themselves. And so they came to, to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. They were afraid. They saw this man who had been a terror to the territory, the man who had been a raging lunatic, a raging demoniac, now who had been screaming amongst the tombs, now sitting quietly at the feet of Jesus. This man had clearly become a disciple of Jesus. He's become a Christian. Again, from J.C. Rowell, never is a man in his right mind until he is converted or in his right place until he sits by faith at the, seat, at the feet of Jesus, or rightly clothed until he's put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the terms that are used here to, to describe this, this man, this former demoniac, are precisely the opposite of how he had been described earlier. He was once full of demons, and now there are none. He was once wa- wandering through the tombs, and now he is sitting. He was once isolated in the wilderness, and now he's with Jesus. He was once falling at Jesus' feet, and now he is sitting at Jesus' feet. He was once naked, and now he is clothed. He was once a raving demoniac, and now he is in his right mind. His situation has been completely restored. Once indwelt by demons, he has now become indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Friends, this is what salvation does. Salvation redeems you from the power of the devil. Jesus sets you free. He doesn't just set people free who have been free from demon possession. He sets them free from sin. He sets them free from immorality. He sets them free from from drunkenness and drug abuse. He sets them free from disobedience to authority. He sets them free from covetousness. He sets them free from foolishness. He sets them free from anger. He sets them free from fear. He sets them free from, from pride. Can you testify how Jesus has set you free? Can you testify to the fact that you are no longer in bondage to the things that once controlled you? Yes, we we still sin. We're, We're still sinners. But if you are a Christian, you have experienced God's redeeming power. The same power that cast this demon, these demons, out of this man dwells in you. The same power even that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Jesus' power dwells in you. Not just power to, to say weird things about, about casting out demons, but power to overcome sin. Power even to overcome the sin that you are thinking of right now. Jesus has come to set you free. But as remarkable as, as remarkable as that conversion was, yours is just as remarkable. You might not have had thousands of demons cast out of you, but you have been given a new heart. Lord, through the power of the Holy Spirit, has taken out the heart of stone that rejected God. He's replaced it with a heart of love for God. That, my friends, is a miracle. That is a miracle of God's grace that is wrought in you and is wrought in me. Again, I don't, I don't think anybody here was actually indwelt by evil spirits. 
but you were certainly influenced and manipulated by evil spirits. But now in Christ, you, have become in, you also have become indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Again, your conversion is every bit as much a miracle as this man's. That this change that, that Jesus works in your life is, is evidence that you now belong to Jesus. Christians are Christ's possession. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. You belong to Christ. You are Christ's possession. He has purchased you with his blood. Let's, let's flip back now to the, the other people, to the, the surrounding people, these other people from that region. You, you'd think they'd be overjoyed with what had taken place. You, you'd think they'd beg Jesus to stay with them and to, to minister to them, but they don't. You, you, you would think that, that the, the, the supernatural element of, of having a demon-possessed man running around would have scared them straight. But they're more scared of the supernatural in Jesus than they were of that demon. They're more eager to get rid of Jesus. In their minds, it's better the devil they know than the Savior they don't. The demons had begged Jesus not to send them out of their region. Now the people begged Jesus to leave their region. Not unlike the disciples in the boat, the people were in great fear of Jesus. But rather than come to him in repentance and faith, they, they, they rejected him. They told him to leave. They were horrified at Jesus. Now that's a horror story. That's horrifying. The rejection of Jesus is a horror story. They asked Jesus to depart so Jesus granted their request. He got into the boat and left and never came back again. But now we flip back again to the response of the former demoniac. And his response is not just starkly different from his behavior before, but it's starkly different also to, the, to that of the people in that region. Verse 38, the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with Jesus. So this man wanted to be with Jesus. He was here sitting at Jesus' feet. He wanted to be as close as he could to Jesus. He didn't want to get, any, didn't want to get anywhere away from Jesus again. He was proving that he wanted to be a true follower of Jesus, that he wanted to be a disciple of Jesus. But what does Jesus do? He sent him away. Just think about this for a moment. He had, Jesus had acquiesced to the, the pleas of the demons. He'd acquiesced to the pleas of the unbelievers. But he denies this man's request. But the denial of this man's request is not a denial of this man. Quite the opposite. Jesus was instead commissioning him as an evangelist. And he has the honor of being the first one commissioned directly by the Lord in the scriptures. We'll see in the, in the coming weeks, we'll see the disciples commissioned and sent out. But here, this, this former demoniac is being, convert, is, being, is being commissioned by Jesus to proclaim the gospel. Verse 39, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. So he's saying, go home and tell people what Jesus has done. Rather, tell people what God has done for you. I think there's an application here for us. and Again, we, we hope that many people from this congregation will, will go overseas and become missionaries. But it's not just those who go overseas who are missionaries. Many must be missionaries in their own homes, in their own families, as by the way you live your life you, and speak to, to, to others around you about the things of God, you are testifying to them what God has done. And you are a living example of a representation of the work of God. And as much as those pigs were that were sent into, the, into the, the Sea of Galilee, you are there as a representation of one who's been washed clean by the blood of Jesus. 
And so this man went away proclaiming through the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Mark tells us that his home was the, the Decapolis. The Decapolis were, were ten cities uh, east of Israel, which were, again, were considered to be the eastern frontier of the Roman Empire. And, and two of those cities were Gadara and Gerasa, from uh, we see in, in, um, here in, Matthew, in, uh, in Luke and also in Mark, but, but in Matthew, these are the, the names of the towns that are, are used. And this man goes. He, he proclaims. He preaches. We see him doing the same thing that Jesus had been done throughout his ministry, has been doing throughout his ministry. He's preaching the gospel. Mark says that, that Jesus told the man to tell him about what the Lord had done, whereas in Luke, he says what God had done. And so he, he is doing this. He, he's telling people what, what Jesus had done for him. And in telling people what Jesus had done for him, he is telling them what God had done for them. Now at this point, this man would not have fully understood that, that Jesus was the God-man. Interestingly enough, he didn't, he didn't have as much information as, even, as the demons had. But he had enough information to know that God was working through Jesus. And that all that had been accomplished for him had been done by the power of God through Jesus Christ. This is really a good illustration of the parable of the soils that we looked at a few weeks ago, isn't it? Right? You, you have the, the, the seed that is, is, is sown on, on the path. And the birds come, which is the, the devil comes and, and plucks away the seed so it doesn't, it doesn't take root. And then you have this man, this good soil that has been prepared by the Holy Spirit. And he brings forth much fruit for the glory of God. The fruit of his obedience. Now, we don't know if, if, if others came to faith through this man's testimony, but, but even if they didn't, he is still bearing fruit for God's glory and his faithfulness to proclaim the goodness of, and glory of God. And in this, we see the picture completed of the, of the change that Jesus has wrought in the man. Once he had no home, and now he was sent home. Once he was crying out for Jesus not to torment him, and now he is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's been set free to serve Jesus. He was once possessed by demons, and now he's possessed by Jesus. Friends, everyone is possessed. Everyone on the planet is possessed by something the vast majority of the people that you look at, even though they are not literally indwelt by Satan, they are his possession. And they show that they are his possession by the way that they live his lives in, that are more looking like Satan than like anything else that God requires. And I'm talking about even people who have an outward veneer of goodness but have no faith because without faith it's impossible to please God. And so every, even every breath that the unbeliever takes is sin against God. They are Satan's possession. But some will be like this man who are firebrands plucked from the fire and become possessions of Jesus Christ, purchased by his blood. Brothers and sisters, you are now the possession of Christ. You have been purchased by the blood of Christ. You once lived for sin, but now you live for Jesus. You, are once, you were once in bondage to sin and to Satan. But Jesus Christ has broken your chains. Like Charles Wesley writes in And Can It Be, that great hymn, My chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Have your chains been broken by the power of Jesus? Rise, go forth, and follow him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we praise you for the glorious gospel. Lord, we were in bondage to sin. We were in bondage to the devil. We were under your just wrath.
But Lord Jesus, you lived the righteous life that we could never live. Lord, you loved your Heavenly Father perfectly. You loved your neighbor as yourself every moment. And that love proceeded all the way to the cross where your life's blood was poured out for our sins as you suffered in our place, as the Father poured out his wrath on you instead of your people. And Lord Jesus, we praise you that death could not hold you, for you were then what you are now, the omnipotent God. You were raised for our justification. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us, Lord, to consider all that you have accomplished for us, the, the bondage from which we were once ensnared, but Lord, that you have broken those chains. You've set us free to follow you and to worship you and to serve you as your possession purchased by your blood. And Lord Jesus, for those who are hearing this who are still in bondage, who are still the possession of Satan, we pray, Lord, that you would break their chains. We pray, Lord, that the, the gospel would be at work in their hearts through the power of your Holy Spirit and that you would grant them repentance and faith unto salvation. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, the only Savior. Amen.